0: Hi, this is Rebecca Buchanan, host of New Books Network, New Books and Popular Culture. And today I'm here with Kevin Matson, the author of We're Not Here to Entertain, Punk Rock, Ronald Reagan, and the Real Culture War of 1980s America. Kevin, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. So I'm hoping you can start by talking a little bit about how you got interested in writing about the 1980s, punk in the 80s, and sort of punk and politics in the 80s, and how this book sort of came about
1: yeah well so uh, you know to uh, the giveaway on that is that I was uh, an inhabitant of Washington DC during the 1980s when a lot of this stuff was kind of crescendoing and I was a participant I uh, um, I, I had my own band um, I had a, a zine that I wrote for um, and I eventually kind of went into uh, political activism via punk um, so my background was in 1980s Washington DC punk and I always felt when in, in my own experiences that that there was something going on there that, um, I didn't get a full perspective on that is, you know, people were doing things that I realized were kind of more important than some people might have thought they were, but I couldn't really get my, my mind around what that was. And so for me, I mean, you know, to give away my age, I I'm coming of age in, in high school in the 1980s. Um, and so, um, it, it took me a while before I was ready, I think, to actually write about it with the kind of impartiality that I think you need to have if you're a historian. And I was in, I remember one of the First days I was in graduate school um, to get a PhD, I turned to my advisor and I said, You know, I'm thinking about writing a book or my dissertation that would b- basically look at punk as social criticism and the, my advisor turned to me and said i don't think that's a good idea and but it always stuck with me that i you know at some point in time i was going to have to write about this and figure it out and in that process of doing that um it it led me to a bunch of archives where a lot of zines are cataloged and and that sort of thing and so i got a, i think i got a wider and i i hope a more kind of impartial view of what was actually happening with this you know broad national movement in the 1980s if that makes sense
0: mm-hmm and you so you sort of sort of start by situating us um right before right right 1979 1980 situating us um in this space when sort of punk broke out um talking about what was happening in the music business or what was not happening in the music business right the struggle in the music business and some of these big name bands so can you sort of sort of set the stage for i don't know if that's the best word but set the stage <laughs> for punk you know it's like set the stage for punk um and so what was going on in that late 70s, early late 70s before we get to the like early 80s?
1: Yeah, no, that's a that's a good question. I mean, I think that um, the, the reason to start in 1979 and 1980 um, is because, I, you know, from my own perspective, there feels like there's a, a new chapter in punk. This is not um, what we would a lot of people would define as punk, which would have been, you know, earlier in the 70s with Patti Smith, the Ramones, the club CBGB, you know, all that sort of New York City. Um, expression. Um, what happens in 1979 that that kind of gives a push to I think a lot of young kids to to start taking up punk rock themselves is that the record industry just crashes in 1979. It crashes, but and it stays crashed from about 1979 to to 1983 when Michael Jackson comes along and kind of saves the music industry from its from its own immolation. Um, what you have in in 1979, and I, I start the book with with a with a song that people are probably familiar with, Blondie's "Heart of Glass," which they also called their disco song. And there had been a, a whole plethora of people who were doing what they called disco crossover music. I mean, there was even like the Grateful Dead had a had a disco song. And what was I think happening was people were getting exhausted with disco um, by 1979. Blondie get breaks big, and it's ir- ironic because of course Blondie was connected to that. What I mentioned earlier, that CBGB, um, Patty Smith, Ramones sort of, you know, experimentation, that's where they cut their teeth. Um, but by 1979, I find them to be, um, the sort of, you know, Re- redoing disco music to such an extent that it, it drives a lot of kids crazy. They've heard so much disco; they're so sick of it, um, you know. And they, and that's what, in some ways. And then looking at the fact that the, the music industry is really stalling out, they're trying to, you know, pump um, stuff out there that's just not getting bought. Um, and I think so. There's a kind of window there between eighty and eighty three where the music industry is in a, in a shambles and where kids are deciding at the same time that it's time to go into their own basements, make their own music, make their own zines, um, you know, make, maybe make their own politics out of those things. Um, so that's definitely the kind of backdrop, um, the, 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 the crash of the music industry in 1979 and the fact that a band like Blondie that breaks big was tied to this older, you know, thing that we would call punk in the early 1970s, um, New York city.
0: And one of the things I really appreciate, and you've alluded in, uh, to it even in that answer, is that you really are thinking about this um, beyond just punk as music, right? So we often get these sort of histories of punk um, that are thinking about here, are the major music players. And you talk about those players, but you're also looking at how it was very, right, the culture um And what was going on at the time uh, with Ronald Reagan, with the culture at the time to really situate and get kids to make zines, to make their own art, to sort of do their own thing and sort of push back against that sort of larger corporate culture. So can you talk about that a bit, like why that's really important to this time period and to what you're sort of presenting and arguing
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that you're right. You picked up on something, I think really nicely that, that, that for me, punk is not just the music. It's not just a list of bands that you can, you know, kind of put forth, but it's it's a search for expression in different mediums and different media. Um, and it's much more, and because of that, it's much more widespread than just, you know, individual bands who happen to inhabit a certain city or a certain suburb or what have you. Um, so I think, and I think that the energy, um, I mean, you can, you can almost see this in something that's, that's usually misunderstood um, in, in terms of the, in terms of the rise of what was called slam dancing, which seems like a kind of silly and kind of, you know, nihilistic or violent practice. But in fact, what it was was it was kind of showing to the performers that the audience was like actually listening and getting on stage and, you know, performing themselves alongside of the bands and kind of trying to give support to, to the bands that, that were performing. So you, you, I never thought that like punk is just like this form of music that is played by individual bands. Bands. I've always thought that it's it's a wider kind of counterculture. And I use the term counterculture instead of subculture because I think this was really an attempt to, you know, project a message that we that punks were actually offering an alternative, a serious alternative to the mainstream culture, and they were counter to the mainstream culture because of that. Um, but I again, the, the the idea that, you know, you can see it in the artistic expression of, of people like Raymond Pettibone, who was the illustrator for Black Flags um, stuff early on, Matt Groening, who eventually creates the Simpsons was um, very much uh, identified as a kind of punk artist and wrote a great deal of, of, of pieces about the punk movement in the LA reader for instance um, I think there's a lot of in literature that doesn't often get kind of coupled together with the uh, uh, w- with the musical expression that, that's the rise of cyberpunk which runs simultaneous in the storyline um, as uh, you know the larger storyline um, and I think that cyberpunk is you know kind of an expression of a sort of dystopian um, future And, and, and a form of social criticism. One of its participants, Bruce Sterling said that, um, reading cyberpunk was like listening to Husker do. So, I mean, there was this notion that the musical style, um, was there, but it was also being transported into literature. And I think the final thing, I mean, besides all the, all the zines that are really crucial, I mean, I think the zines are kind of the heart. Of, of all this, it's where people are discussing ideas, you know, making criticisms of bands that they feel has sold out or whatever it is. Um, the zine is is crucial um, to to constituting this I- this idea that you know this there's something more than just the music going on here. There's the proliferation of zines. I consulted I don't know somewhere you know close to like 300 zines that have been cataloged in, in, in university libraries across the country. And then the final thing is this idea that they, I think because the the movement was so anti corporate, anti corporate corporate. corporate music, an anti-corporate in and of itself, that it became, for some, an easy connection to see how you could take that anti-corporate attitude and flip it into a kind of form of politics. Um, it was a politics, predominantly, that we, we would associate with direct action. Um, the, 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 cl- the clearest expression of this is the war chest tours that are organized out in San Francisco, where protesters actually don't go after the government, but go after the corporations that are defense contractors and, and the, the makers of, of, of bombs and things that would kill people. Um, that's, th- that's where you can see this kind of tie in of the anti-corporate feeling more, br- more broadly uh, alive and punk into a kind of form of politics. I think in some ways that, that, that political action in, in some ways foresees things like, um, you know, occupy wall street. So I think again, you, the, the movement is much more than just the music. The, the movement is, you know, writing zines, art, um, protest and, and all sorts of different things kind of, you know, glommed together.
0: Right. And. You also sort of, because of this, because of sort of this turn in the 80s, like one of my um, favorite sort of quotes that you have um, throughout is that idea of meet your future entertainer in chief, right? <laughs> right. Um, but that idea that also we have this move from um, Jimmy Carter into Ronald Reagan, um and this 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 move to an actor right being positioned winning the election by a large amount so can you talk a bit about that real shift in the united states and even in europe right we have a, this shift with margaret thatcher as well but the yeah. shift in the u.s um politically and what this sort of means to what's going on with punk and um and, and in the early 80s and how this sort of is put push, a push back on that
1: Yeah, no, that's a great question. Um, Yeah, I think that the the entertainer in chief um, sort of idea uh, to describe Ronald Reagan, I think is is actually spot on. Obviously, he had been a governor um, before he ran for president. So he's not quite the same, you know, he's not exactly identical with someone like a Donald Trump who had no political experience whatsoever and and was fully kind of birthed by the entertainment industry uh, and real estate. Um, But I think that Ronald Reagan, you know, always kind of considered when he was uh, tr- trying to run uh, the country and run the government, he, I think he still always thought in terms of movies, Popular music um, and things along those lines that he governed with what we would call popular culture. I'm hesitant about using the term popular culture. I I, I would say um, probably it's better term like the culture industry um, as the Frankfurt School would call it. Um, but I think that like you know for for a lot of punk kids it was precisely this kind of sense that this guy president was an actor um, that mattered as much as the fact that he was spinning out some really cruel. Public policies, you know, cutting in the lunch program so he could fund the military more. Um, you know, going along with the with the building of the Selective Service so that you would be prepared for war in Central America or elsewhere or Afghanistan, for instance. And I think that there was this kind of this perception of the president that he usually kind of governed it with falsehoods. Um, he would cite movies much more than he would cite, you know, an actual public policy that he wanted to get passed. He would, you know, glom himself on, for instance, to Michael Jackson in 1984, inviting him to the White House and saying, oh, oh, isn't this, you know, isn't this just a wonderful guy and, and look at all the great things he's done and, and basically saying, you saved the music industry and I'm really proud of you for saving the music industry because that's the kind of corporate music industry that I'm, I would get behind. Um, but again, also like the use of the films that he, he very often used used to trying to attempt or appropriate Bruce Springsteen's born in the USA while he's campaigning for a second term. Um, he's a, he's a figure that seems to be completely tied and in sync with the entertainment industry that dominates so much of, you know, American culture during, during the 1980s and, and, and at other times as well.
0: Mm-hmm. So we have this sort of president, we have this sort of idea of uh, another idea that's coming out of the 1970s um, of excess, right, in mm. many ways. And then, um, and you highlight a number of different bands and, and different eras. But one of the things you also get at that started during this time and, and partly, I think, I would guess as a pushback to a lot of what you're talking about is the straight edge movement, right? Like, and this becomes really important. So can you talk, and I found it really interesting too how you come talked about the connection to sort of social protest novels or, you know, and that kind of thing that were, were going on and, and how you brought in some of the relationship to uh, some of the texts that have been written even prior to this time. So can you talk a little bit about straight edge
1: Sure. Um, yeah. Straight edge, I think it was one of those kind of uh, very much misunderstood um, ideas and it wasn't ever really, you know, I mean, there, there was ne- never uh, like a manifesto of straight edge. You know, there were a few songs predominantly by, by, um, by minor threat um, from Washington, DC that tried to define what was meant. I think it's, you know, pretty straightforward in some ways. It's, it's the first counterculture to kind of reject drugs and not see drugs as a, as a, as mind expansion, but seeing drugs as something Something that basically, you know, clouds people's perspective on reality. Kind of, you know, cuts down on their energy level, um, cuts down on their their the anger that's kind of you know boiling within a lot of the people who are participants in this movement. Um, and this idea that you have to be, you know, you have to be um, uh, straight. In order to really actually engage in your society and make change, you can't be you know bought off by people who are you know peddling alcohol, marijuana, whatever it is. Um, it's a weird mix of politics, right? Because it sounds kind of in some ways like it's conservative, um, you know, a rejection of drugs. After all, you know, Nancy Reagan is is, is famous for her "just say no" campaign um, against drugs. But I think that, and this this is ties into the, the the point that you made very nicely about the literature that's kind of the in the background here. I mean, if you go back and you read like Jackson Jack London's writings about alcohol, if you read Upton Sinclair's writings about alcohol in, in the jungle, for instance, um, you'll see there a kind of critique of alcohol as a as a mechanism to kind of keep people down, not recognize w- what's going on with them. And they kind of slide downwards in, on the economic ladder. And so uh, there's always been this kind of, I think, socialist critique of, of drugs because it kind of, you know, fuzzes up um, the, the working class consciousness that you want to build a a revolution off of. And people have to see with their, you know, their naked eye, what's going on around them and not be, uh, not be fueled by, by narcotics. So, I mean, it's, it's a, it's a weird mix of, of kind of, you know, a cultural conservatism, but it's also, I think in some ways, not in the case of minor threat necessarily, but I think in some other people who appropriate it, a a form of, of of protest against, against the culture that you're in in general opposed to, which seems to be marketing alcohol, which seems to be, you know, um, uh, you know, Encouraging marijuana consumption in in certain in certain ways, um, especially throughout the 1970s, I would say that's that's evident. And I think that the rejection of drugs and the rejection of of alcohol, um, are, are things that kind of show a kind of new way of thinking about what it means to be a member of a counterculture, how you have to, you know, kind of negate many of the, the, the perceptions, um, that people would have of you as probably being, you know, drunk or, or violent or what have you. So it's, it's a really interesting and, and, and I think in some ways a more complicated, um, set of politics and s- then some people I think kind of give it credit for.
0: Mm-hmm. And. So throughout you sort of talk about um well you focus on you talk about DC also though talk a lot about California um and the role of sort of punk in California in both Northern and Southern California. And so um maybe we can start with sort of Northern California since the Minutemen are throughout this, right? Um, so can you talk a little bit about what was going on at that time? Sort of the Minutemen started a little prior to the 1980s, but you, you know, used them throughout this. So sort of what was going on in Northern California? Why um, these bands were, you know, what was going on with these bands and what sort of brought them to be? Yeah. I mean, I, I,
1: the Minutemen, I think really get their birth, um, uh, in, in, in Southern California alongside of, you know, they play their first show, um, with, with Black Flag, who I think is consciously trying to cultivate younger, newer people who are coming into the scene. I mean, a lot of the members of Black Flag feel like, you know, they, because they're, they, they come from the suburbs that a lot of the people in the kind of 77 to 79 punk scene in Los Angeles are, are, are kind of rejecting those people, um, uh, because rejecting the, the, the new, the quote unquote newcomers, even though black flag had been around for quite some time, same is said for the Minutemen, right? They kind of get this, this, this sort of impression that they're not wanted, um, in part because they're, they're working class and they're not, you know, they're not the art school type of, 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 you know, pr- a person who would be attracted to punk. I think that what happens is that there's this kind of spread throughout the whole state of, of California. I think San Francisco becomes, I think the, the probably the most politically, um, explicit scene um, but I think that you know the Minutemen are playing music that is 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 tons of tons of politics to it I mean it, it always alarms me when people compare punk with the counterculture of the 1960s wh- where you can say you know actually when you think about it a lot of there's not a lot of examples of protest songs um, from the 1960s there's a few but it's pretty much a handful um, almost everything the Minutemen played had a political message to it it wasn't and it wasn't didactic it was it was complicated and, and much more complex than a lot of protest music Often becomes, but you can see this kind of spread throughout California, and and when you get into Northern California and you start to see the kind of what happens with like places like you know San Francisco is that they you start seeing this kind of onset of suburban kids from the East Bay coming into San Francisco in new ways, um, by, by 79 to 80. And, and, and someone like a Jello Biafra, the leader of the dead Kennedys sees these kids coming in and says, Oh, this is something new, right? This is not, this is not the 77 to 79 state of, of punk rock in like a place like San Francisco, which would have been the Avengers, the nuns, bands like that. This is like a more youthful, um, think There's almost like a generational divide, even though I don't think it's, it, it doesn't really align directly with a generation. There's not enough time to separate the two generations, but there seems to be a kind of younger participant that's mo- moving in. And I would say that more importantly than in California is the fact that this stuff starts to spread, especially throughout the, um, the Midwest, it starts to sp- hit places like, Tulsa, Oklahoma. Um, it hits areas in, in Texas. Um, it hits places in, 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 uh, Florida. I mean, this becomes this extraordinarily kind of widespread movement. I'm not saying it was huge, but it was definitely much more widespread than, than I would expect the, the, the counterculture of the 1960s to be. So again, that, that spread, you know, from throughout California, then kind of spilling over into the Midwest, um, as, as bands like Black Flag go on tour and, and, you know, to live in you know stay at people's houses and set up a kind of touring network that's a kind of DIY operation um, so I think that there's this inherent spread um, that I don't think enough people have paid close attention to to understand just how widespread this really was
0: right and I think I would, I would say that a lot of that is because it very much happened underground mm-hmm. it, and right. So I would love for you to talk about how you see the role of zines in ha- making this spread happen, right? This move into being able to sort of travel um, and tour throughout the Midwest and college to write college radios becoming big. But can you talk about mm-hmm. how you think sort of zines, Um, or if you do, but I would hope you do. I think you do, right? How zines are helping this sort of spread of this movement.
1: Right, so in a lot of zines, what you'll see is you'll see this kind, of the kind of question of the network that seems to be bubbling up, where bands can go, you know, kind of hit the road and, um, you know, put together per- performances that are really, really cheap um, and that are often in very, very unique venues. I mean, one of the interesting things to note is like, you know, kids are organizing shows in bowling alleys um, and in dog grooming places. <laughs> I mean, just some of the, the you know, places you would never expect to see. And I think in some ways that's kind of an expression itself is that, you know, this might not look like rock and roll to you, but this is what we see rock and roll as being at this time. Um, But the zines allow for a lot of communication and you'll see things like, you know, people posting in a zine. If you come to play in Milwaukee. Um, don't contact this guy to put on your show. He's going to rip you off and he's going to make your, your, your experience very, very unpleasant. Contact us. And so you start to see this kind of conscious ability to, to say, we want to do this ourselves. And, and the DIY spirit is crucial to especially the zines that are reporting about the networks that are growing up. Um, but it's also a way of trying to keep control over, over, the, over the expression. So you know, one thing, for instance, that you see kind of traversing and discussed in zines in great detail is the question. About both all ages shows, that being a name that that you don't have to be of drinking age to, to go to a show, and there's got to be a way that that can be done, um, and people have creative ways of, of doing that. Um, and I think that the you know the, the the second thing is just you know again warning people away from people who might be looking to profit off of this um, rather than make it accessible to as many people as possible. The thing about zines for me is, I mean, yes, I, I think if anything. I would say that if if I if I accidentally put you know look at something in more depth than just the bands and maybe you know maybe freight it more than it did, that it deserves, it would be the zines. Um, I, I especially like the fact that if you look at a lot of these zines, they do a kind of trade and barter sort of thing. So, like a zine that's you know well established in, in Washington DC, a zine called Truly Needy will say, "Hey, we'll send you our zine for free." being more established if you send us your zine for free and there's this kind of potlatch culture that the zines sort of initiate and they also initiate this kind of form of communication and people growing aware at the time when I think I myself was kind of missing this about how much you know networking is going on and how much there's this bold attempt to retain control over cultural production. That is, you know, keeping the prices down, making sure that they're all ages shows and then communicating that through the zines that report about the networks that then the bands can then plug into and like basically not have to start from scratch the way that, that a band like Black Flag would have. So it's really a, a medium of communication, which I think is, is crucial. They, and they're not just talking about the music, Right, I mean, there's there's all sorts of zines that have political diatribes about Ronald Reagan or what have you. Um, but it, it, they they kind of widen a discussion that I think in many in their own minds, and I think they're right about this that the you know what now we would call the mainstream media um, doesn't give you know doesn't pay any attention to. Um, so it's a form of communication for people who kind of feel um, you know that they're that they're being marginalized by by the entertainment industry.
0: Right. I mean, I could talk about zines all day, but yeah. one of the things that's got, uh, one of the things I love about zines and even, and you mentioned like maximum rock and roll, right? Yeah. Which if you're in the punk community, if you're in the zine community, even not in that community, you, that's a zine that is well-known, right? But even when it becomes well-known, there is still this idea of how we need to produce it, how we need to get it out there, right? That continues with that sort of DIY anti-corporate ethic, right? That we see. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean, they, they remain a, a collective, a communal. Um, production unit um, they uh, they they try to make it such that when they the 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 price of the publication is visible to people who would buy it in in areas outside of of, of san francisco um, they make a consistent and conscious effort and i think some of that is uh, kind of ironic in some ways because the two chief architects for the period of time that i'm looking at maximum rock and roll and th- this is obviously a publication that changes over time but the two chief architects of it as I studied it, was a guy by the name of Tim Johanan, um, usually just called Tim Yo, and another gentleman by the name of Jeff Bale. And what they do is that they are older, um, than most of the new participants who are kind of, kind of coming into scenes from 79 to 80 onwards. Um, they're older. They've actually, in Tim Johannan's experience, he actually witnessed the protest at People's Park in California um, during the late 1960s um, and kind of drew a lot of his own historical lessons from that. Jeff Bale actually remembers witnessing what happened with the Democratic Convention in 1968 in Chicago and being politicized by that. And they kind of take that political and historical memory and they try to use it to kind of frame out what Maximum Rock and Roll is talking about, and the, the, the key conclusion that they use, and you hear it you know, iterated over and over again, um, is, is this idea you have to control your own culture. You have to make sure that you're setting the terms of your own culture and that you're keeping control over those things, meaning prices. All ages shows, um, you know, uh, independently produced artwork. If there's going to be artwork, um, you know, those sorts of things need to be consciously engaged in, um, lest the lest the, the 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 movement fall prey to what they see happening, especially in the in the early 1970s, which is this kind of mellowing out and the kind of rejection of politics um, that defines a great deal of 1970s culture. But there's this awareness, and in some ways, I was kind of surprised by this because you know I I never really thought about like people who would Say, oh, let's study the 1960s protest movements and counterculture, and see what we can learn, and as warning about what it is that we're engaged in during the 1980s. It, I was kind of, you know, surprised by how conscious that really was. Um, and, but you know, maximum rock and roll was also, in some ways, kind of exceptional. It didn't. It, it you, you could compare and contrast it with, like, say, a zine out of Tulsa, Oklahoma, um, which might have similar politics behind it, but has a very different way of voicing what they want to voice.
0: And what's interesting, right, we've got these zines, we've got um, bands, and one thing I wanted to talk about, maybe I'll ask this question first, one thing I also think is really interesting that you talk about and how we sort of, this movement um, expands is we've got these larger bands, right, we've got, or you know, that people have heard about like the Minutemen, Minor Threat, Black Flag, mm-hmm. who when they tour, they're also going into these sort of venues and asking local bands to come yeah. and play. Right. Yeah. And so like, can you, I think that's a really uh, important aspect of continuing to create sort of local scenes and getting, getting people involved, right. As opposed to just sort of being there and, um, watching, but being a part and experiencing that music. So can you talk a bit about how that helped to sort of spread how you think it helped to sort of spread the scene?
1: Right. So when a band like Minor Threat, um, or, or the Dead Kennedys would be on tour, um, they would demand that they, that they play with, um, you know, the so-called opening acts being local, Um, and, and trying to use this as a way to promote the local scene rather than the kind of seemingly national scene that's growing up around bands like Dead Kennedys and Minor Threat. Um, so, I mean, and and it's again done very consciously. I mean, they just basically demand, you know, okay, we'll play, but you have to have a local band basically opening up. Then the other thing that they do that I think is important, you can kind of see this going back to the zine thing, is that they they give, you know, interviews very openly to any local zine producer um, about what's going on. You know, and I a lot of the interviews will read like, you know... Um, questions about like, you know, what, what do you mean in this song? What, what's, what do these lyrics mean? And, you know, it's kind of explained to the, to the person who's writing up the zine, but at the, but at the same time, you know, they, they seem to be saying, look, you know, w- we want to nurture the local zines as much as we want to nurture the local bands. We want to kind of nurture the scenes that are kind of growing up, bubbling up from below and kind of give them some credit um, where credits do instead of like, say, you know, come in with, the, you know, the kind of typical um, style of, of, of musical performance at the time was, you know, arena rock where there was just, I mean, you felt like the the performers were like kind of, you know, helicoptered in, played their set to, you know, a throng of people in this dark stadium and then kind of got back on the helicopter and moved to the next place. There was no attempt, you know, to try to, you know, nurture any sort of local culture um, that, that, you know, you could see them being connected to. I, but again, it, it had to be done very, very consciously. And I'd say that it's both the, the, um, the, the show venues that do, that do well because of local performers, but it also is the zines who can basically start saying, yeah, we're documenting something that's going on locally, but it's also tied into this kind of national network that bands like the Dead Kennedys, Black Flag, Minor Threat are basically creating throughout the 1980s.
0: And I love that because it continued, right? Like, so the zines and you see that even in the early 1990s and zines, um, when we get a Mm -hmm. lot more commercialism with punk um, that you talk a bit about, but we still see the zines sort of doing that with um, certain artists talking to those writers and still creating that local network.
1: Yeah, I don't, I mean, you know, this question about that that's behind what you just said, of course, it's like, did punk die at some point in time? And, and, and it's, I, I, I suggest that something happens in 1985 that changes the nature of things. And, and, but I don't suggest that, you know, the ethic of punk could ever really die. I mean, I, I think that you know, I just don't have the time now. But I, I'm sure if we just fished around on the internet, that you would find stuff that you know is is deeply indebted to to the punk spirit of the 1980s. Um, and so I don't think something dies. I mean, and people are still putting on. You know, I, I live in a college town, and and there's this um, there was this uh, building that these these college students would basically, um, uh, rent and they would, they would have zines out in front for people to pursue and they would have musical performances. And I, I, they asked me to kind of come and give a talk about what it was like being involved in the 1980s punk scene. And I was really like, Oh my God, look at it. You know, this is, it's all, it's all what we were doing back in the eighties. And it was just, you know, kind of fascinating to see that. So I don't think it ever dies. I do think that something changes in about 1985, which is that there's growing interest on the part of major labels to some of the bands that are basically, you know, um, getting more and more popular. And I think that's always the danger about, you know, a band like Minor Thread or Jello Be with the Dead Kennedys is the, 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 the fear that these are going to be, p- these people are going to be turned into stars and celebrities, right. And kind of picked, you know, picked out of their local scenes and kind of used for a national marketing, you know, uh, uh attempt. And I think, you know, I was, at, I was talking about the book at one point in time in this, Young person uh, in in the audience said, "Well, did you ever meet Jello Biafra? Did you ever meet Ian McKay?" <laughs> and at first, I was like, "Well, you know, actually, yeah, I, I did." And and then I said, "But wait a second, you know, you have to understand. I don't think you're getting this. That they were just regular people to us, right? I mean, there was no there was no star or celebrity. There was no like, oh, this is God walking on Earth. The way I think people, you know, genuflect to someone like a Michael Jackson during the '80s. Um, you know, this was these were just, you know." participants the danger was that you know if they were conceived of as stars um, that you know it would be very likely that the mainstream culture would poach them um, and try to remarket them as you know the daring rebels of the of the 1980s um, and and in the, the new form of you know musical expression or something like that so I think that that changed the, the nature of this I think it's hard now for, for me to imagine that a, a kind of anti-corporate, um, network of music and zines and stuff like that would, would, is, would have a chance of exploding in the way that it did, I think in 79 to 80. And that's in part just because of the, the, the contingencies of history, the fact that the music industry just really hit the, you know, just collapsed in many ways. Um, uh, but, you know, I, I still think something changes, but on the other hand, I also think that this, this, um, the, the the ethics of punk um, kind of still live on in different forms of expression. Even I would say, you know, one other thing, just from my own personal experience, is that I've I've noticed that since we've had um, you know the virus and the plague hitting um, that there's a in my own local neighborhood there are these gatherings that people are calling for in which people will play music for one another. Um, and, you know, you, they require that you wear a mask. They require that you do six feet of distancing. Um, and, and, you know, but it, like when I saw the posters and when I actually attended one of these things, I was like, you know, they, I don't think these people would say that they're in line with punk. But it's awfully it's awfully hard not to see a kind of direct connection between that sort of local neighborhood based participation. And, and I think what some kids were trying to you know, put together in, in the 1980s.
0: Yeah. No, it's funny that because I, I even think back to like, I was at college in early 19, right. Ninety to 94. And I was in, um, near Mankato, Minnesota, where we had huge punk band, right. We had lots of bands coming through and playing in a basement, um, including green day, which was green day before green day. Right. yeah So because, um, Billy Joe's future wife lived in Mankato. Right. So they toured through there all the time, but it's that kind of thing. Like, it's just like, yes, but that was like, like you're saying, that was just, those were just like a bunch of guys. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Like playing in a basement and you were like, Oh, this is fun or this isn't fun. Yeah. Um, but right. And, and I don't know. Yeah. But maybe that could happen today in some way as well, but it's happening in different kinds in different ways. Right.
1: Yeah, I mean the rapidity at which you know commodification occurs is it's is just kind of remarkable right I mean that, that right. I think it's hard to imagine this happening and, and again without there being another Nirvana and another you know whole marketing mechanism that calls itself grunge um, and that people are going crazy about that's hard for me to imagine happening again because I think in some ways perhaps it for a good reason because we're a little bit more jaded um, I think with the with the green day uh, uh, mentioned that you had there um, I, I it's it's not within the purview of the time that I'm studying, but, but one of the, the most well-known, um, things that comes out of the punk scene in, in, this, in San Francisco is the Gilman street project, which was basically a, again, a collectively owned, um, a, a venue for shows. They would have, they would have zines. There was no alcohol allowed for. And that seems to be where Green Day, um, started to really kind of, you know, um, kind of gestate, state so to speak um uh, as as it did for other bands that that actually wound up doing fairly well commercially but it's you know it's ironic to see something that's so much tied to the DIY um spirit of things and DIY organization um and yet at the same time you know basically um you can you know what's going to happen to this stuff right <laughs> you know mm-hmm. it's going to become commodified and marketed at, at to a national audience and when i started hearing green day you know uh, playing on MTV Um, When I was sitting in a bar in New Jersey, I was just like, oh, my God, (laughs) this is unbelievable. You know, stuff that could I just never thought would have been, you know, marketed back. Or or the best one was when the when the band Chumbawamba, who was a British uh, peace punk Mm -hmm. band, um, who were, I think, really talented and really a wonderful group, you know, suddenly broke number one. Um, Mm -hmm. And and I was just like, this can't be happening. This just doesn't (laughs) this doesn't make any sense to me. Um, This is this is supposed to be independent in an underground it's not supposed to be blaring on mtv but you know it did
0: right and, and now it's everywhere and now it's that's everywhere. what everywhere gets that like one of the things i thought you know was interesting as being a teenager during for me during this time right like coming to my house i'm a teenager of ronald reagan in ways that like have influenced my politics and right. thinking you know like growing up in that time but you also talk about um right in the early 80s so punk is becoming you know Big in the and moving, but like it's also like the you talk about Phil Donahue, which I so remember the Phil Donahue <laughs> show, right? You talk about like Phil Donahue and, and being on chips and I remember I even remember um watching, you know, those those after school specials oh, yeah. and those kind of, right where it's this idea of like how they are presenting or sort of pushing against this idea of punk. So can you talk a bit about what you sort of um, we're seeing with that or how you were seeing the main. I don't know if it's mainstream media, but mainstream television, um, bringing punk to, or ma- bringing punk to sort of a larger audience in those ways.
1: Yeah, no, it's a great question. I think that the the you know this is why I have the the term culture war in the subtitle of uh, of the book because I think that they you know what punk kids are doing is tra- is is fighting in a culture war in which they're trying to define themselves for a wider audience as not what the media is trying to present them to be, um, and and there's a real conflict effort to push back against these kinds of derogatory treatments. So, um, you know, yeah, you've listed the, 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 the key, um, culprits in, in all of this. I, I would, I usually say, well, it's, you know, Phil Donahue show, um, in which, you know, um. Uh, uh, he holds up the uh, record, by, uh, the EP by the Dead Kennedys, Nazi punks, fuck off, and he says, "And here's a you know a, a EP from the Dead Kennedys called Nazi punks," <laughs> and, <laughs> and they, the kids in the audience go, "No!" <laughs> and he says, "Well, what, then what is it? It's the Nazi punks, fuck off!" And they bleep them, they bleep the kids, right? So you, they don't get a chance to get their their point across um, because of the, you know the way that those shows are run. Then you have the you know these this, this show Quincy famously, which is a, a show that centers around a, a, a medical investigator who is convinced that punk rock causes young people to kill one another. Um, there's the class of 1984, which is a kind of B movie that was a Canadian and American product, but it also starred Michael J. Fox who's on the, on the rise to stardom in, in the eighties. And um, what it depicts punks is, is like people, these young kids who are completely unruly hate their teachers and actually wind up raping a pregnant teacher, uh, a, teacher's wife who's pregnant, um, and then shows the photos of them doing it to the teacher. I mean, just like stuff that's just, just you know, unbelievable, like that people would like, you know, project this sort of thing, uh, onto, um, you know, a, a movement that, you know, I'm, you know, had, had its elements of violence or what have you, but wasn't causing murder and wasn't causing people to think that they could rape their teacher's wives. I mean, this was just, this is just insane in some ways. One of my favorite ones was, was a show in LA, um, uh, in which they did a they did a series about um, kids turning punk in the suburbs and how scary this was because that was the big fear, right? Is that oh my god it's come to the suburbs where everything's supposed to be hunky dory and and one of my favorite things is like you see this like interview um, with this woman who becomes popular at the time named Serena Dank who founds a group called uh, uh, Parents of Punkers. um, and and usually basically says the punks kind of like a cult and you have to be you know kind of deschooled in it through psychotherapy so that you can become a better person and so she's in. She's she's involved in the series and then there's these parents who are talking to their two kids the, a, a boy and a girl um, both have no hair, you know, they look like kind of like skinheads and and the parents are like crying and like talking about how hard it's been to have a punk rock kid and the whole time the two kids are just like rolling their eyes, right? just kind of like, whatever, you know and the best part of it that I thought was is they, they say, you know, and punk rock is, you know, a violent movement and all this sort of stuff and they follow the young boy into his bedroom and he has this little turntable puts this record on and you can barely hear it you really have to listen to it but it's a it's the the, the band that's playing is, a, is a, another british peace punk band called crass and the the lyrics that he chants to is Fight war, not wars. Fight war, not wars. And I'm like, what a penultimate example of, of violence, right? I mean, this is this is this is this is just uh, taking something that was, I think, in some ways almost like you know a, a negative of a photograph, and just kind of flipping it around. Um, eventually, you know, what you see is that uh, after a concerted effort, um, after a number of riots that occur in in Los Angeles around the shutting down of punk shows by the LAPD, um, there are uh, occasions in which like some of the kids who are involved in the movement there, especially this guy, Sean Stern, who had a band called Youth Brigade, um, will get on television and we'll make his case. Like, you know, but listen, we're kids growing up with like the, with you know, the nuclear bomb um, hovering over everything that we, we you know, we live for. We're, we're concerned we're going to be drafted and sent off to war at any moment by, by by Reagan. We believe in, you know, we believe in peace. We believe in, you know, these sorts of values that sound an awful lot like the 1960s counterculture. Um, and, and, you know, they really are trying their best to kind of remake, the image of punk um, in the eyes of a wider public um, how successful they are at doing that you know that's difficult to study but they made a concerted effort because i think they were so pissed and livid that you know they were being so poorly treated um, w- w- in most mass media uh treatments of punk
0: no and right it, when i as i read that section right read that part i kept making me think of even um 10 years earlier with the sex pistols on the Grundy show, right. That kind of this idea that like they look this way, you know, this, this scary looking children who are, you know, these scary looking people who are going to take over the brains of your children and turn them into, you know, Creatures of the night, yeah, or whatever it might be, right? done done by a host
1: who's a lecherous, like <laughs> flirting with the with the oh. punk women, you know, within within.
0: Good God, you know, I mean, uh, I know I was like, oh, Susie, I really like Susie Sue, and like, so she sort of like put him in his place that time, but yes, like it just like made me think of that, oh, you know, that returning to that kind of, that narrative.
1: Yeah, Yeah. I think that's that's ex- absolutely right. I mean, the uh, the other part of that narrative that some people would cite as important is when fear plays Saturday night live. Um, and, uh, basically a bunch of kids from DC and New York and local punk scenes come and just basically just <laughs> completely destroy the set and throw, you know, throw things Throw They throw a pumpkin at one point in time because it's Halloween and, and they basically shut the show down, which, you know, in, in, in many ways, gives you a sense of like how, how these, how these kids kind of appear dangerous, you know? and as some as people who didn't deserve the, the, you know, to be on screen. Right.
0: And then you sort of you, um, move us to 1984 and I find it, especially with two weeks to go before, um, for the official election, right. Even yeah. though many of us have already voted, right. It, it sort of makes me think of some of the narratives that we have going on right now. Right. This, like this, ominous idea of the future this fear of what is going to happen right if we continue moving in the direction we do but then a turn because of this in sort of punk and in music so can you talk about um 1984 and sort of what you saw going on during this time and sort of what prompted like you said this sort of um move away from what you were seeing going on in the previous few years
1: yeah, I, it's it, uh, well. I I, I uh, opened the chapter on 1984 with the fact that there's a zine that's coming out of Alaska in 1984 um, uh, called uh, uh, I can't remember the title of it at this point in time. I can let me see if I can find it. Um, uh, uh, let's see. Oh, the zine was called Warning. Um, came out of Alaska, and I make I make two points about this. Is one is that you know. You can really see um, uh, uh, the fact that this, this widespreadness of punk has finally made it on, onto the you know the supposed last frontier of America in Alaska. But you also have in in the zine itself, as it's publishing in 1984, a lot of this sort of like you know fear about what's going to happen um, when not not that they knew this at the time, but you know when very likely Ronald Reagan will be reelected as president, um, and this kind of fear of the fact that you know it, it seems like it's not like they're drawing a direct equivalence between George Orwell's 1984 and their own existence on the other hand they're saying you know uh, this is an administration that seems to play around with historical facts that seems to be you know intent on on propaganda seems to be kind of, you know, wanting to generate wars, um, and, 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 and fight those wars. Um, so I think there's just kind of increasing fear. And then as you, as you follow through the rest of, of, of ni- the, the year of 1984, um, you see, I think both growing political awareness on the part of, of some of the punks that are engaged in this stuff. Again, this is when you start to see the move towards the war chest tours and protests at, at, at conventions, um, More more awareness, but also a kind of growing sense of futility um, that this is not going to this is not going to change things on the national political scene. Um, uh, You know, a realization that Reagan is more popular than 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 a lot of people thought. On the other hand, you know, you're going to a place like uh, he's you know Reagan's campaigning throughout 1984, and Reagan felt more comfortable campaigning than he did governing. I think it's it's pretty clear, um, and he he did not like to have press conferences because he did not like to have follow up questions. This sounds an awful lot like our you know, current occupant <laughs> oh. of, the, of the of the White House, and I think that there. But you know, he he does this famous rally um, in, in Orange County in favor of his campaign, and and um, one of the things that happens is that a bunch of punk kids show up to protest, and they're did they, they get the shit kicked out of themselves? Pardon my English. They they get beaten up out outside of the outside of the the rally um, by People who are older than they are. One was a 13-year-old guy who gets, you know, pummeled by, you know, people who are guys in their 50s or what have you. And so there's this kind of real kind of sense of like there's a there's an ugly nature to the kind of support that Reagan's receiving. Um, very kind of mindless, a lot of mindless patriotism in people's minds. The fact that the Summer Olympics are held during during this year um, and and you know are are just all about kind of you know USA USA type of things. And I think there's this kind of growing fear that I don't think that. It's that America's going to turn into George Orwell's dystopia, but uh, a kind of recognition that no matter what you do and what you engage in, um, there feels more like a futility to some of the political activism that's bubbling up in, in 84. Um, and that, I think, then, you know, plays itself out after Re- Ronald Reagan's reelection and, um, you know, traveling into the last year of 1985.
0: Right, and and you and so you talk about like the rock against Reagan, mm-hmm. right, and that idea of rock against racism, and also so also in the you know, during this time we also have MTV coming out, right. Yeah. We also have this sort of a different move or a different um, rebirth in major label record industries. We start to see, and so uh, and, and you talk about that and how that sort of challenges or. Um, comes into the punk scene. So can you talk a little bit about that, right? The MTV era, Madonna, you know, Michael Jackson and and all of that and how that's sort of impacting what's happening
1: as well. Yeah, I mean MTV is probably like one of the m- most central institutions of mainstream culture in the United States during the 1980s and it's, you know, and it, and it is new. It reaches a national market during during the 1980s that it, you know, it, it hadn't uh, reached before. Um, you know, w- you know what is MTV? I mean, you know, there's people who do kind of intel- intellectual gymnastics to say it's like an artistic form of expression when in fact you know we all know it's it's a form of advertising it's a it's advertising for corporate labels it also i think some people forget this it forces performers to have to worry as much about their image um their visual image as they do have to be concerned about you know um, what they uh, you know what they sound like, um, and so there's this kind of move I think towards a sort of you know image-based way of measuring popular music, um, and of course this is the the medium in which um, uh, Madonna gets her sort of you know boost there. MTV works very closely with um, with Hollywood. Um, and with record companies. So, one of the things that you'll start seeing throughout the 80s is you'll start seeing, and if you, if you know, the, the clearest example of this I, in my own mind is the movie Breakfast Club, where you see this kind of pseudo rebellious, you know, message about y- young suburban kids breaking down the lines of cliques and like uniting against this nasty guy who's basically overseeing their detention um, and them opening up about how they, you know, they feel repressed and all this sort of stuff. But the majority of the movie, or a good chunk of the movie, is basically. A, a, a kind of an MTV scene. Right. And it's being made both for the movie, but also for the sake of being broadcast on MTV. So you start seeing what some cultural historians call synergy between these two very large corporate entities working side by side. So you get if you get your MTV stuff into the movies, the movies will then also, cl- you know, clip scenes and, and and then maybe put music to it for MTV. And you start seeing these things working together. At the same time, you start seeing them reaching out and, and promoting things like soundtracks of those movies. Um, Things that are tied into uh, uh, you know uh, into the, the the corporate industry more widely, um, and this is also the, the period of time in which someone like a Michael Jackson um, really rises to incredible popularity. And a large part of the reason for that is not just—I mean, you could say you know he was a talented dancer and talented musician in, in the medium that he worked in. I, you know, I'll, I'll accept that. But but you know, it's it's also very clear that um, he. Jackson looks for support from corporations to promote his tours in predominantly in Pepsi. And then he does a commercial for Pepsi. That's the one where his hair catches on fire. Um, you know, th- that, 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 you know, there's this attempt to like basically score it big in all the different venues that you can in all the different corporate venues that you can and kind of make those things work with their energy. The I think the funniest thing, and I make a fair amount of this event is when Ronald Reagan, as I mentioned in the past, welcomes Michael Jackson. Um, to the White House lawn um, with the idea that he's going to be um, helping out with an anti-drunk driving advertisement. But in fact, what Reagan celebrates him for is the the high sales that his records made, right? And he says, oh, this is such a thriller um, to have beside me, Michael Jackson. And he's basically recognizing, I think, that the music industry is is now on full recovery mode. Um, And a lot of that full recovery mode is that they've gotten many more appeals to an audience, with mtv um but also kind of corporate tie-ins that that you know fund these kind of big mega stars that start having a comeback um in in the year of 1984. so i mean there's a lot going on within so-called popular culture at this time where uh you know corporate people are trying to figure out the best way to overcome the crisis that hit the hit the industry from 79 to 83. And I think working together with MTV, Hollywood, you know, perhaps, you know, a a celebrity and maybe even politics with 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 Ronald Reagan, who was always, you know, celebrating certain movies that he thought were, uh, you know, of of upstanding quality, usually movies that lend themselves to his own message. Um, But you can kind of see this sort of like putting together uh, a, a kind of synergy between these different actors that I think in the end Basically, rescues um, the the music industry. One final thing that rescues the music industry is the advent of the CD. Something that you know you and my students have absolutely no idea what that is. Um, but you know, suddenly people are reissuing all this you know old stuff on record labels onto the CD, and suddenly it becomes necessary to buy you know the CD player that you can you can listen to the stuff and buy all of your old records on in CD version. That too kind of saves the the record industry um, from kind of you know continuing to to, to kind of nosedive as it was in, in, in 83 so I mean there's this real kind of almost kind of like a corporate you know um, revenge uh, on on the scene uh, in in 83 to 84 where you know you're seeing a lot of this energy and tie-in going on and and uh, in the end I think it's 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 successful um, it wins the widespread audience that that those corporate people are looking for it also elevates you know not to say too much about this but it also elevates you know the the idea that the celebrity the musical celebrity is is somehow a moral agent for good. Because it's at this point in time that some people might remember, the the production of We Are the World that's carried out under predominantly leadership of Michael Jackson, where you have all these celebrities coming to, coming together to talk about you know um, hunger in Africa, um, and uh, what you what, if you you re, if you don't take it at its at its face value and say oh what a good initiative, what you start to see is that it it, it implies that you know rock stars are the ones who should define political action or where who you put your money who you give your money to or what or whatever it is, um, there's a kind of reglorification of the rock star celebrity that again, you know, pr- probably is most made, uh, explicit by Michael Jackson.
0: And, and you sort of end with like that idea, right. This sort of corporatization of music with, uh, you know, bringing it back to one of my, still one of my favorite bands, <laughs> right. Who's kerdoo um, and this idea of signing to Warner brothers and how that then, um, starts to cement this move of punk into the mainstream culture, right. When we get to like I don't know when I can't remember when 120 minutes came out, right? But that idea of even MTV sort of commodifying punk, Um, and so can you just sort of talk a little bit about that, sort of your epilogue, and how you see what's happening during this time, really moving into punk and what and changing, right? Changing punk into a different kind of space.
1: Yeah. So, um, you know, I, what I found to be really interesting, one, one of the more interesting exercises that, uh, that I did in this book was I, I followed interviews with Husker Du and, and mostly would be with Bob Mould in specific. Um, and, you know, it, there was a consistent thing that you would hear from them in, you know, back in the late seventies, um, up until, 1985 which is we will never work with a major record label once you work with a major record label you lose control over your product you lose control over the way it's produced all those sorts of things and we will never ever ever do that and the, the the culprit for them in the early interviews was the clash signing with cbs right so they say oh that ruined the clash and all that sort of stuff and then and then you just see this like in about 80 84 85 really um you start seeing this sort of like you know interest in, in bands like Husker Du, but also Black Flag, um, on the part of magazines like Rolling Stone and Rolling Stone's competition, which is an important publication that a lot of people forget about, which is Spin Magazine, um, which is, which touts itself as basically marketing or, or, um, you know, seeking out the alternative to mainstream music, um, and you start seeing this kind of interest on the part of both of Rolling Stone and Spin magazine on these like new young punks that they're they're suddenly coming to discover in 1985, which is kind of a, a giveaway because you know they weren't paying attention to them in 1980, 81, 82, 83, or 84. Suddenly there's this kind of interest in them in, in 1985, and it's at the tail end of 1985 when Husker Du decides to um, you know sign to Warner's and. It's, it's very clear that, that, you know, what, what they worried about, um, in terms of their capacity to retain control over the product, um, they, they start facing themselves with like people who are coaching them, pushing them in a certain direction, telling them how to, you know, record things, telling them how to, 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 you know, um, get, get, Get their product out onto market. Um, they suffer from all the things that they themselves already kind of were talking about th- throughout the 1980s. But what this symbolizes is that there is a there is some interest in the mainstream media in what su- what will become more and more defined as. And I put scare quotes around these words: alternative, or my favorite one is indie. Not independent, <laughs> but indie, right? In style, um, and so what you start seeing is the you know uh, people who are saying, oh, maybe there's something going on with this this punk stuff that we've rejected for the last four or five years. Maybe there's something here. Here, and there's figures that you know are important in this. I'm not going to get into the details because I think um, you can kind of get into the weeds with this sort of stuff. But there's a, a young gentleman by the name of Jack Rabbit who um, produces his own zine very early on, and it starts, I think, in about '82. By the time that you're getting into 85 and then onto 86, he's basically become almost like a kind of cultivator of what bands should be signed with major labels um, and the kind of the voice of who should that be. You also start to see that college radio is starting to be um, forced to play not independent music, but, you know, music that's being promoted by corporations. So you're starting to see this kind of the return of kind of corporate music. Showing some interest in punk. Now the difference between you know 1985 and in 1991 with 85 Husker Du doesn't do terribly well. I mean they go on a, they go on a um, they go on a major and they they don't live up to the hopes that the the major had for them. What happens in 91 when you have you know a band that I should point out came out of the the punk rock world of the 1980s nirvana had connections to that punk rock world the, the dave Grohl was in the dc scene um you know cobain was 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 very tied into the early seattle scene um uh that's erupting by 81 82 and i think that you know what happens with with nirvana is that suddenly i and w- what explains this i don't know I, I can't necessarily say that i understand exactly what's the difference but they break big and once they break big in 1991 um you know the, i think that the house of cards just kind of collapses um for for a lot of people um that is that you know it's no longer that um music that you call independent is 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 applying diy practices it's that there's a kind of style of music that sounds kind of anxiety-ridden angsty whatever you want to call it that gets labeled as indie and that's at the point at which i think that the possibilities of punk retaining its practices that it put into into effect during the 1980s um Kind of like you know loses out to the corporate behemoths who are more interested in picking up celebrities um, and 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 key name bands and and promoting them um, and making gobs of money in the process.
0: Oh, so we've been talking a while about your book um, and punk, and I probably could talk for a while longer. But um, <laughs> do you have you? I'll ask you my like last, one last question. Um, if there's something right, so this just came out. I know we're in the middle of a. Pandemic, but is there anything you're working on now that you sort of want to, you know, what your next things or anything that you want to promote with this book? Um, so I'll just put that out there for, yeah, <laughs> I always
1: hesitate with that. Right. Because I come up with like, you know, maybe four or five ideas, uh, you know, every day and, you know, I'm, I'm always like, you know, um, Oh, will I really, should I really do this? You know, should I really commit the time that it takes to, to do the research that I think you need to do in order to, in, in, in order to, um, you know, write a book, uh, write a, a work of history. Um, so in, in some ways I think that, you know, this project has kind of, it took a long time. Um, I, 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 feel like, you know, I've invested a lot of time and effort into it. I also actually have a lot of fears about whether or not archives, and you and I were talking about this earlier, you know, whether or not archives are going to be accessible anytime in the near future. And I believe in archival research as a, a key crucial element in any historical writing. Um, the one idea that I've been toying with, and I've thought about, uh, to, uh, you know, tossed around, I'm not going to make a commitment, um, would be a history of, uh, anti-fascism in America. Um, because I think that this term Antifa has been thrown around a lot recently. And I think people forget that there was a kind of intellectual political tradition behind the idea that, um, it it would perhaps be a good time of remembering, um, such a thing. But again, I'm really, really hesitant about saying that I'm going to make a full-fledged commitment because I just, you know, um, there's a certain element of burnout when you work on a project that, you know, I'm sure you know about in your own, in writing a book that, um, yeah, you know, I mean, you're kind of like, uh, check back with me maybe in a little while. It's probably too soon to like know for sure what, what I what I foresee doing in, in, in the near future. But I, I appreciate the question. <laughs>
0: Well, Kevin, it's been really great talking with you. Um again, this is Kevin Batten, the author of We're Not Here to Entertain: Punk Rock, Ronald Reagan, and the Real Culture War of 1980s America.
1: Thanks for having me on. It was a real pleasure. <laughs>